Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. Hello and welcome to this podcast on humanitarianism and transitions to low carbon future. My name is Ekaterina Shukova and I'm a senior lecturer at Lund University in Sweden. This initiative is supported by the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies, NCHS, as abbreviation goes. And this initiative is also co-organized with my colleague in absentia, Antonio de Lauri, who is research professor at Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway and also is director of the NCHS. And today we have a great pleasure to welcome David Bond, who is Associate Director of the Center for the Advancement of Public Action in Bennington College in the United States. David is a cultural anthropologist and his work evolved around the questions of oil spills and how they influence the production of new forms of knowledge in both science and governance, and how they reconfigure human and non-human relations. David has done extensive ethnographic work in the Caribbean, Canada, and United States, and he is an author of a new book that has just come out this year with the University of California Press, and is titled Negative Ecologies, Fossil Fuels, and the discovery of the environment. A warm welcome to you, David. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to join you uh, and delighted to talk out these very pressing themes. Yes, and that's what I where I want to start. I want to start right with your new book. Can you tell me what brought you to writing it? Yes. Uh, I, I was doing field work uh, almost 10 years ago. I mean, I, I started on the BP oil spill. Uh, and was down on the Gulf Coast during the the whole duration of that disaster. Uh, And and from there, moved to uh, some extractive sites, the tar sands of Alberta, uh, and also some very leaky kind of colonial refineries in the Caribbean. Um, And I got really frustrated with the fieldwork. I was seeing a lot of, uh, of, I mean, just disastrous realities. Uh, people's lives completely besieged and devastated by the fossil fuel industry. And I felt like uh, ethnographically, we were offered two paths of how to make sense of those, of that destruction, of those disasters. One, you know, a kind of environmental justice path that worked really hard to make experiences of suffering legible to a state but the state's also complicit in how those problems happen. And that was a really frustrating sort of path. The other path was to sort of almost celebrate the destruction and imagine what kind of seeds are present that might take root after the present order collapses, a kind of ontological utopia. 
And I, and I felt there was these two sort of paths of, of ethnographic significance that I was asked to sort of write within the vein of environmental justice in a real present tense kind of thing, or a kind of ontological utopia that only would think within a castle from the future. And, and neither was adequate. And the book starts and, and I think tries to stay within that frustration of, of how we really take stock of the crisis and crucible of now without losing sight of struggle, without losing sight of what people need now, and without losing sight of a revolutionary horizon. And you also call it negative ecologies. I have never seen this concept before, so I would like to claim that you are the person who has introduced this new concept to allow us thinking beyond environmental justice and beyond ontological utopia. Would you like to tell me more about it? Yeah, I mean, the first, it, it came up descriptively more than before it came up conceptually when I was trying to write about what I was seeing and how destruction, especially the destruction of the fossil fuels, sort of, it, 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 filled, it goes in the webs of life and it sort of moves out and, and corrodes and dissolves and assaults the relationships both uh, social relationships and you know relationships we have with the natural world in ways that have an imprint of destruction that far exceeds the ability of the state or the offending corporation to recognize or to fix. And I, and I wanted to, to find a way of centering that destruction. And I think, I mean, for me, this is obvious to frontline communities, communities that are living on the front lines of the fossil fuel industry recognize the scale of destruction is, is irrational, is beyond the, the, the reason and ability of the state to solve. And I think centering that helps us both, you know, for me, <laughs> conceptually centering that negative ecologies, the, the destruction that exceeds the ability of the state helped both sort of center uh, the injustice that's happening to never lose sight of that, but also recognize we need revolutionary change. Change that's adequate to meet the crisis at the scale at which it's happening. Uh, and that's, if that makes sense, that's that sort of where negative ecologies helps anchor me ethnographically. So, you know, I felt that uh, environmental justice and this ontological utopia are both inadequate in mm -hmm. some way. You know, like environmental justice, but they, they, they both do good things, but they're ultimately inadequate to now. Why? Environmental justice builds a legal case against oil companies. And that's good. We should be building legal cases against them. And that, and that work can bring practical assistance to besieged communities that are desperate for any help they can get. Mm -hmm. But that work sometimes loses sight of the possibility of a world beyond the offense of the oil industry. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to I have that uh, horizon. You know, uh, ontological utopia scholarship it builds a conceptual case, a conceptual case, not a legal case, a conceptual case against the normative structure that authorizes destruction. Great, we need that. And that's an altogether good and necessary thing. But it's a theory that finds voice with such distance from the people that are living this crisis, you know, every day. Mm -hmm. And it lacks an ability 
to provide any practical assistance to them in the here and the now. Mm-hmm. And, and worse, some in that vein, in the vein of ontological utopias, actually, I think, end up taking perverse pleasure in destruction because it accelerates the collapse after which their theory will finally come to matter. In, in the, I mean, you, you, you follow me a little bit, but I think, you know, Benjamin has that great line that, you know, those who experience our collective destruction as an aesthetic pleasure of the highest order as the way that fascism actually happens, you know, comes back into that ontological utopia scholarship in a really sharp way today. And if we think about revolutionary change, that negative ecologist, the concept allows it, allows it to think about, how can it happen and what actors can be involved? Yes, and the scale uh, that we need to be like thinking and acting on, uh, absolutely the agents, all of that. I mean, it, it, uh, I can run back. I mean, I'll go through my contrast one more time and then I'll be done with that, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, in, in my frustration with existing scholarship, one of the things I kept asking is what's the relationship of theory to struggle? Mm-hmm. Environmental justice centers struggle, but has no theory. <laughs> Ontological utopia has all theory, but no struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, uh, okay, so there's something that we need to have both of those things together. Theory should always be in conversation with struggle. The point of theory is not theory. The point of theory is to draw us more effectively into the fights that we have now, mm-hmm. in my view. Who's the agents in these, in these, in these projects? Environmental justice suf- uh, centers the agency of the suffering human. And we're, we're so much more than that. Uh, and frontline communities are so much more than a suffering subject. Uh, ontological utopia begins to center the, the political agency of everything beyond the human. I haven't lost sight of the need for justice for humans yet. And I think there's something with that that we, we, sh- we should be thinking with a wider array of actors, but not at the cost of social justice for besieged frontline communities. Uh, and there's also a temporal dimension that environmental justice loses sight of a kind of her- a more radical future that's possible now, where the ontological utopia folks sort of bunkers down entirely within a more radical future with little to say about how we get there from here. Negative ecologies to me blast apart, you know, those, those sort of dualisms, those separations and centers a, a material reality that demands we think on both fronts that we think in terms of practical struggles for justice in the here and the now, and the absolute necessity of a radical horizon, a radical future, a a revolutionary possibility. And where will be the state here? Will it disappear in the revolutionary change? What role of the state here? I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know, but other than it has to radically change whatever it is, mm-hmm. that the state as it currently exists, and this is where I get with negative ecologies, is wholly inadequate to the scale of the ecological crisis that's unfolding right now. We have to act now if we have any hope of survival. We have to act revolutionary in revolutionary ways now if we have any hope for survival with dignity for all. You know, like, like now, 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 this, the existing state seems completely inadequate to that task. Mm-hmm. But I do uh, have hope 
because the people who are living on the front lines of this crisis, and very soon we'll all be living on the front lines if we not are already, but they are beginning to grasp the scale of change and the speed at which we have to change everything. That, and that's not a theoretical point. It's, it's becoming pra a practical necessity in so many places. And, and I want to kind of seize upon that and think with that, act with that, and, and you know, help provide a kind of rich theory for that struggle. At the beginning, where we just started talking, you said that you were frustrated with fieldwork. And I would like to ask how actually ethnography helped you to go beyond ontological utopia and environmental justice and see in the field how negative ecologies work. Frustrated with how I felt I, I was supposed to interpret mm -hmm. the field. That's where my frustration lies. I love, I mean, I'm field work, I'm totally, uh, uh, completely committed to uh, and, and will be so, uh, you know, ongoing. What, what I was, my frustration was, was that I was, the existing scholarship, I felt pushed in one of two directions that wasn't adequate to really describing richly what I was seeing, which is destruction beyond reason. A kind, a kind of a kind of devastation of the world, a kind of uh, 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 assault on, on people and the natural world's well-being, that 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 it far exceeded the ability of the state or the corporation to either fully recognize or fix, mm -hmm. and and people knew that, and yet there was no way to kind of capture that, uh, describe that richly in a way that sort of didn't immediately go in one to two directions that I felt diminished the power of that, 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 that witnessing of destruction in excess of uh, systems of sort of uh, existing systems of environmental justice or a conceptual sort of register. Uh, so the, the fieldwork really, I mean, if I stayed with that, if I was honest to that, if I was true to what I was seeing and, and feeling and trying to sort of make sense of, I needed to find a way to center that conceptually as much as ethnographically. Uh, and that's that work is sort of really what, what brought me first in a descriptive way and then trying to actually work out a more a concept of it, uh, negative ecologies. If you remember a moment or a vignette of your fieldwork, um, what would it be when you actually seen a moment of this negative ecology right in front of you, if you can remember. The, uh, the BP oil spill, mm -hmm. there was a moment early on when all, we were getting reports. Uh, I, was in, I was in marine science labs at universities. And then on the weekends, I would go and be part of the unified command team that was trying to sort of operation, you know, manage the operation of responding to the oil spill. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and very early on, we, we started hearing reports and I started talking to scientists who are seeing a complete collapse of um, fish, uh, the fish spawning sites, uh, crab spawning sites, um, all of these things. They couldn't, they couldn't figure out how to connect it to the oil spill, but there, something was happening that was collapsing all of these populations all up and down the coast. Now, it seems obvious it's the oil spill, but the existing science didn't allow a persuasive connection to it. And so something was happening that was rippling out 
that was leading to this collapse of, of juvenile marine life populations all up and down the coast. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I mean, there was something to that that was, it was, it was, it was happening. The scientists that I was with sort of knew it was connected to the oil spill, but we kind of lacked the means of making it factual to the state. Mm-hmm. And it's an, it's an excess, something's happening that's an excess of. Uh, similarly, uh, in the tar sands of Alberta, when I was working up there, when you go up there, the scale of destruction is I mean, it's just completely shocking at the, what's happening, what's unfolding and at what scale. They're just bulldozing an entire landscape away. And if you go to the sort of, it's all, it's all pr- premised and framed around the promise of restoration. But when you, when you go there, you realize the, 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 the restoration is like a little fig leaf. It's, a, it's like a figment. It's like a, it's like a fantasy that's like kind of held up, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it can't uh, bear any scrutiny at all. And the destruction is in excess of any ability to actually sort of really restore that landscape. Uh, and, and you go and talk to folks, even some of the engineers working for the companies who are tasked with this. And they also recognize like all we can do is put together these little model landscapes that are supposed to stand in for the whole, but will never be able to scale out, you know, the, the, the restoration to the scale of devastation. All we can do is create these model little like postcard landscapes that we will, we will capture and we will put front and center of all of our images of what we're doing, but we have no means of actually doing it. And there have been a few folks who've actually tried to run the numbers on the cost of what, what an, uh, an adequate restoration of that landscape would be. And it far exceeds the market valuation of all of the corporations working up there. <laughs> Again, these things are sort of like, you know, these, dis- these forms of destruction that exceed the capacity of the state and the, the oil industry are mm-hmm. present in ways that get made invisible or get, get domesticated into problems that we know how to fix. Negative ecologies helps me sort of really think through and center the destruction that's already in excess of their capacity. And then also, I mean, so one, a kind of critique becomes possible that can, that can confront the problem at the scale at which it's happening. And that's important to me. And, and, and to center an ethnographic critique that can confront the crisis at the scale which is happening. Also, what opens it up by starting there is, 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 is attending to the ongoing scientific and, re- and regulatory work of domesticating that material crisis into parcels and pieces that we can sort of manage. We can measure and manage properly. But so much gets tuned out, edited out, pushed to the side in that process of domesticating these problems into something the state knows how to solve. And, and centering negative ecologies helps me sort of describe that process and see all the things that fall to the wayside in the making of, of a manageable problem around fossil fuels. And would you argue then that just stopping drilling oil and just using alternative sources of energy would not be enough? to live in a better world. What is your take on that? If we do not yeah, use a, fossil yeah. fuels, is it enough? It's a good start. <laughs> uh, and it's a necessary start. Um, uh, of course, we have to decentralize energy networks. Of course, we have to democratize energy. Of course, we have to learn to live with less energy. All of these things are true. And all of these things have to happen. 
my my frustration sometimes with the with existing environmental politics and environmental science to be clear is it doesn't allow a direct confrontation with the fossil fuel industry those confrontations are happening but they're often happening in these sort of like insurgent social movements they're happening in frontline communities standing up environmental science itself the way it's constructed as a science and environmental policy as it's constructed, at least in North America, disallows a direct confrontation with the fossil fuel industry, in part because it was designed that way. And that's, you know, part of my, the book is trying to track out how the history of environmental science and environmental policy in the US, which really are all about fossil fuel industry and trying to find ways of providing the acceptable parameters for the American addiction to fossil fuels to expand without causing too much problems uh, in the environment. So the, the regulation of clean air, for example, it's what the Clean Air Act in the US, which is seen as sort of a landmark environmental legislation and opens up a whole new world of environmental sort of legislation for states all across the world. What the Clean Air Act does, it does not regulate air. It regulates fossil fuel emissions. The seven or so you know, substances that it actually puts thresholds for and guidance for are all fossil fuel emissions. What, what the Clean Air Act does, what it should be called, is the Fossil Fuel Emissions Act. And what it does is it puts some parameters on the emissions, which does nothing to confront the underlying addiction or the sort of the underlying destruction that the fossil fuel industry is doing. It just says, try to keep emissions within these limits. So science then will be one field where change has to happen as well. It has to disentangle yes. itself from the field yes. of fossil fuel. I mean, whole, mm -hmm. One of the points I try to raise in the book, and it's still a kind of, at this point, it's still a provisional sort of opening, but the history of environmental science and environmental policy is fairly recent, but it, it's all built around, it opens with a, I'll say this, it opens with a kind of revolutionary uh, shock at the scale of destruction unfolding in the post-war moment. Uh, and that's often around the fallout of nuclear weapons uh, and the new ways that petrochemicals are sort of infiltrating life. And there's a shock at the, at the scale of destruction that's been happening. And in a sense uh, among scientists and among some policymakers that we need something new that can help us make sense of this new crisis. And that becomes environmental science and environmental policy. But very quickly, it gets bent away from any kind of direct uh, confrontation with those problems and into a more complicit kind of a structure that's all about authorizing those things within certain limits. Do you think that initiating the confrontation would be possible? Yeah, I mean, this, I absolutely, yes. I mean, this is... It's both, uh, it's both completely reasonable for people living on the front lines of these crises. If you go to Cancer Alley in Louisiana, where there's a huge concentration of petrochemical plants and oil refineries, yes, a, talking about a confrontation, a militant or, 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 or you know, direct confrontation with the fossil fuel industry makes complete sense to those communities who, who are you know, assailed day in and day out by the uh, the negligence of the oil industry. It's also, I think, interesting to go back through the history of, of the environment and go back to the environmental crisis of the 60s and 70s, where again, that kind of uh, 
interest and commitment to trying to confront the crisis at the scale at which it's happening was present and, and is lost in how it gets taken up by the state. One of the points I tried to make in the book is that uh, however provisionally, the environmental crisis of the late 60s and early 70s began to draw a new kind of attention and, and truly a new kind of attention to thermonuclear statecraft, the ways that, that nuclear weapons were being used as a form of diplomacy and, and a way of rearranging um, the, the, the sort of the political economy of the globe uh, and attention, critical attention to petrochemical prosperity. So you have these two sort of things that, that the environmental crisis draws our attention to in new ways. Thermonuclear statecraft, petrochemical prosperity. Both of these, I, I sort of try to insist on, are the actual material foundation of the U.S. empire in the post-war moment. Both of them are the pillars, the foundation of how the U.S. begins to assert itself in a more imperial way across the globe in the post-war moment. The environmental crisis of the late 60s and early 70s, however provisionally, should be read as an early critique of U.S. empire. So many scholars have, have tracked out these relations, but they've done so by focusing on nuclear weapons and military bases as one genealogy, or fossil fuel companies and petrochemical prosperity as another one. And they go in two different directions. One that really centers the state, the nuclear sort of you know, issue. The other that centers corporations, fossil fuels. Great, they both offer different windows to understand how the US comes to flex a new imperial muscle in the post-war moment. But, but in terms of the effects, that both of those structures have, the ecological effects of nuclear weapons and petrochemicals, they actually have you know, commensurable effects on life across the planet. They both assail the fabric of life in strangely similar ways and create a kind of a field of, of impact that's quite commensurable, that actually ends up being integrated and, and sort of you know, blending together. And if you read some of the early environmental crisis work on the environmental crisis in the late 60s and 70s, it centers fallout as a new field of science and politics that sees those two pillars of U.S. empire, nuclear weapons and petrochemicals, as, as, as sort of having the same, the, the same texture of injury that's being inflicted on the world and asks in a, in a fairly like sharp way, I think, what science and what politics is adequate to that fallout. And again, however provisionally, I want to read that as a really interesting critique of U.S. empire, as a really interesting challenge to the material foundation of U.S. empire in the post-war moment. And would you also say that the relationship and um, intertwining um, uh, connectivity between the uh, nuclear energy on one hand and energies that is produced from the fossil fuel has also been impacting how science operate that is working on on the one hand these are two different fields but on the other hand they are connected in terms of funding in terms of uh, you know research problem yes. and so on yeah 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 yes I, I completely agree um, and it's I mean it's it's, it's interesting to me because at the same moment that a lot of, I'll just say broad strokes thing, <laughs> it's a podcast. And if you're not going to say sweeping <laughs> statements in a podcast, where are you going to say them? Yes. 
at the same moment the U.S. empire is coming to rest its, its imperial reach on nuclear weapons and petrochemicals is the same moment that American social science is beginning to turn ever, ever more sharply into the interpretive, the symbolic, the discursive, mm-hmm. all of the things that sort of distract attention from issues of materi- materiality mm-hmm. and how materiality is being remade as a kind of synthetic force of empire itself with nuclear weapons and petrochemicals. Mm-hmm. So there's some curious way to me in the history of social science, how we've come to think about the world, that the reign of the kind of the, the interpretive trends, the symbolic trends, the discursive trends all begin to take shape at the same moment, the U.S. is flexing itself with new synthetic, um, you know, uh, authors of force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this mismatch. Um, and, and, you know, American social science, for better or for worse, seems uniquely incapable of seeing that material foundation of U.S. empire as it's taking shape. Oddly enough, though, Rachel Carson, Barry Comner, and other ecologists begin to sort of voice a critique that goes straight to the material pillars that are holding up this new imperial swagger of the U.S. And do you think that because of the interest in alternative sources of energy and new companies emerging, a new funding uh, comes into this field because it's also a profitable field, to what extent it can break this old tradition of uh, marriage between nuclear and between fossil fuel and create something new? And to what extent it will also continue the pattern and past dependency of culture that has developed over these years? I mean, it's a great question, and I can only offer sort of a very early <laughs> sketched mm-hmm. out response. Mm-hmm. Um, but both nuclear weapons and, and petrochemicals and fossil fuel industry were premised on centralizing the positive accruals, right? Mm-hmm. Centralizing the accruals of, uh, of force in the nuclear weapon, that the force could be monopolized in some way and centralized, and accruing the profits uh, in terms of fossil fuels that could be sort of accrued and centralized within corporations. While, while the ecological effects were dispersed in, a, in, both, in both cases in a planetary scale. Uh, so absolutely, we have to get past that and we have to confront that. Uh, and we have to think about how we can also distribute the positives in a more generalized way mm-hmm. and centralize the negatives for those who are liable for it, who those are responsible for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, need, we need a politics that can reverse that kind of uh, schematic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think, you know, there are, there are good reasons to be, be hopeful. And, and uh, even as there's lots of like, you know, urgent work to be done mm-hmm. to insist upon those changes. Mm-hmm. And based on that, I would like to ask what this book has inspired to do uh, you to do now? What are you working on now? And what would you like to work in the future? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, have, I, I have two sort of, um, very case-specific projects I'm working on that will both eventually be books. Uh, one is with PFAS chemicals. PFAS chemicals are uh, they're called the forever chemicals by a lot of advocates because they, they don't ever break down. Um, I started uh, working with a nearby community, one of my neighboring communities here, was the second site in the U.S. to discover these chemicals, which are, which are petrochemical, they're associated with plastics manufacturing, and they were they were you know synthesized by the U.S. military actually as part of the Manhattan Project uh, as to their durability 
their inertness, their, the strength of the bond within them was very useful in processing radioactive material in the manufacture of, of, of nuclear weapons. Uh, and it very quickly found commercial use in the manufacture of plastics. Uh, and again, it was emitted without thought for decades and decades, even as the corporations, 3M and DuPont, that knew were beginning to, to understand any interaction with this chemical in the factory was causing really alarming health trends among their workers. They just kept emitting it without thought. Now, anywhere we look for this chemical, we find it. I mean, its use was fairly restricted to plastics manufacturing in the US and Europe. Uh, but anywhere you look on the globe now, top mountaintops, ocean trenches, um, in, in, in rain, in Switzerland, they just found it in rain. Uh, anywhere you look for these chemicals, you see them. Uh, and they cause harm at microscopic scales of exposure. It's, it's These chemicals by themselves are driving toxicology into a new scale of measurement, parts per trillion, because they inflict harm, durable, trackable harm on populations at exposures that are at parts per trillion and going lower than that right now. Uh, and it's it's become a crisis that is is still like still emerging and taking shape, but it has now planetary dimensions, mm -hmm. and it the the chemicals themselves and how they assault our health and the health of the planet just overwhelm the existing structures of environmental governance. So similar negative ecology. So right? how do we center that? How do we make sense of that? How do we not start with what the state can fix, but start with the problem that overwhelms the state? And, I, and I, I take heart and I'm inspired by the communities I work with because they take the failures of the state, the inability of the state to, to, to rise up and confront this crisis, not as a place of theoretical you know, wonderment, but as a site of urgent political action. Where the state falls short is where our politics begins, where our demands for something better start. And I, I, I uh, have been working alongside this community for seven years. It's, it's, it's also my, my home community where I live now. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's an issue that I, I feel you know, very strongly about. And I know there's a, there's a kind of story to be told there mm -hmm. that I think uh, centers all the things I'm talking about, maybe in a more conceptual way in the book, uh, in, <laughs> in, in a single story. Um, and then there's a refinery in the Caribbean that I'm also working on that I've, I'm trying to, uh, I'm, I have a draft of a public history that will be hopefully uh, under, in process soon. Um, and at one point, it was the largest oil refinery in the world on St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is a fairly modest island. It's not that big, but because it's a territory of the U.S., it was exempt from labor law, environmental oversight, import-export restrictions, and tax law. And so those exemptions helped helped it become uh, a massively profitable site to, again, accrue all the positive sides of the fossil fuel industry's profit and, and just distribute all of the harms without thought. Uh, and that, that refinery has almost single-handedly just devastated the island of St. Croix. And I think there's a, there's a powerful story there. And I've, I've worked with residents um, and I'm happy to talk about that more, but we, but we, we, I spent a lot of time in the past year down there working with residents and trying to demand attention to the injustices they're living day in and day out and provide some basic assistance now while also beginning to think about what it would be like 
to confront that refinery at the scale of the damage it's done and to demand a different kind of economy that centers people in a profound way. Um, but that work is ongoing and, and we're sort of trying to figure, figure out how to, how to keep that struggle going. And what I notice in both of these examples of your current work, you talk about collaboration between frontline communities and researchers, and I think about participatory research. So I would like yes. to ask, do you think it's one of the ways how to change how science work and to make science more just and more accountable also to what is going on? Absolutely. I mean, we, ha we have to get out. We have to move out. The The... I feel uh, at this moment, a lot of scholars are, those that go out into the world and there's a lot of doing really good work in the world, sometimes leave their theory in, in, at, on campus mm -hmm. and go out and, and provide practical assistance. Others don't go out, but they sort of, you know, keep the theory on the campus and dream big and think mm -hmm. huge thoughts and all of that. Mm -hmm. What I'm always most struck by in the work that I'm doing is how hungry a lot of these frontline communities are for cogent explanations of what on earth is happening to them. They, they feel under assault. They feel the ground shifting underneath them. They feel everything twisting and turning. And they, they want not only assistance in like demanding justice for the harm being done to them, but they also want explanations of what are, what's happening that help them think through what politics is necessary now. And so I've found in both, both these sites, when I write a lot of local opinion pieces and local papers, and that all of them are infused with a kind of theoretical lens of, of, of how should we be seeing this crisis? How, what sense do we make of it? How should we look at it? And how might we understand its historical formation, who's, who's complicit in it, and the scale at which we need to be confronting it? And I've found that that those pieces get, I mean, that there's an unexpectedly large audience for, for folks to try to think with explanations and theory in a way that's mm -hmm. attentive to their own experience. Mm -hmm. the theory that's being written, you know, with some attention to how people are living these crises. Mm -hmm. Theories that is born not out of the office of the university, but on the ground together with the community. I mean, yeah, I and I and I, I'm I'm you know I'm getting more and more passionate about that point because mm -hmm. everywhere everywhere I've gone, I just I it, it's it resonates again and again to me that that we have to be involved in the world, but we we can also bring our theory there, mm -hmm. and we should be theorizing with attention to what will help people in their struggle for justice today. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, David, for sharing your insights. I would like to remind our listeners that uh, our precious guest today was uh, David Bond, who is Associate Director of the Center for the Advancement of Public Action. Even the center where you work is called Advancement of Public Action in Bennington College in the United States. And I would like to invite our listeners if they want to uh, learn more about humanitarianism and how it plays out in the environmental and climate related um, uh, uh, places in the world, uh, visit our website www.humanitarianstudies.no and we will be back. <laughs>